1: Hello and welcome to this special episode of Idaho Reports. I'm Melissa Davlin and tonight we're taking a look at the ripple effects of hospitals being overrun with COVID positive patients, nearly all of whom are unvaccinated. Travis Michael Bus, Chief of the Lewiston Fire Department, shares how this surge is affecting emergency response times across the state. Then producer Ruth Brown talks to Sam McComas, associate director of patient care services and chief nurse executive at Mann Grand Staff VA Medical Center in Spokane, about how veterans care at his facility is affected by North Idaho's overwhelmed hospitals. But first, on Wednesday morning, nearly a week after the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare activated crisis standards of care statewide, St. Alphonsus in Boise invited Idaho reports to tour its emergency department, trauma center and life flight communication center to see how COVID is affecting the hospital's ability to deliver high quality care to everyone who needs it. We also got a look at the ICU, where we saw room after room of sedated, ventilated COVID patients, not all of whom would be going home. These bells are placed on the windowsill of a physical therapy room at St. Alphonsus in Boise. The gym is one of several rooms that has been converted to patient care spaces during this COVID-19 surge. The room isn't outfitted with call buttons. Those bells are there to help those future patients summon nurses when they need help. In mid-September, Idaho activated crisis standards of care statewide, which allows higher nurse-to-patient ratios and gives healthcare providers a framework on how to use limited resources like beds or ventilators in extreme emergencies. In this case, that extreme emergency is COVID-19, as mostly unvaccinated patients fill hospitals across the state. But crisis standards of care doesn't mean people won't get needed care.
2: Crisis standard of care uh, allows hospitals to be more creative, to, be, to, to put into to place processes that didn't exist before to meet the extra demand. It's, it has nothing to do with a universal uh, DNR or anything like that.
1: When Idaho Reports visited St. Alphonsus on Wednesday morning, the emergency department was quiet. That can change rapidly, said Dr. Parker Fillmore, trauma medical director at St. Alphonsus. When it's not
2: quiet, uh, you'll see a patient in every room in every bed and every hallway. It's harder to get around, trying to get uh, around people. There'll be three or four people going different directions. Uh, you'll see the nurses really hustling. They're working double time, right? Not only just the hours, but just how fast things are happening in the emergency room. It may take longer to be seen by uh, your doctor. It may take longer for that nurse to, to come back and check on your pain level, check on the response to any treatment that's received. It may take longer to get imaging. It may take longer to get imaging results back. So there is a little bit of a stretch in terms of when things happen.
1: Hours after declaring crisis standards of care statewide, Idaho Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jepsen experienced that reality for himself.
3: My mom had a stroke Thursday morning, just a few hours after crisis standards of care was activated statewide. Not only was it stressful that my mom had a stroke, there was added worry about the availability of health care when she went to the ER. Things were different in the ER. There were other patients receiving care in the waiting room. My mom fell when she had her stroke and there was a concern that she had broken bones the x-rays were done in a non-traditional x-ray area with a longer wait than usual fortunately she did not break any bones normally a person in her condition would be held overnight for observation
2: because of crisis standards of care after she was stable She was discharged later the same day from the ER. When you come to the emergency room, you have a wide variety of patients. You have the patients who come with chronic problems, uh, and you have patients who come with emergencies that need immediate action. If you need immediate action, you're not waiting uh, for that to take place.
1: St. Alphonsus is the level two trauma center for Southwestern Idaho and the surrounding area. If you get into a bad car accident, there's a good chance you'll end up here. And right now, you'll still get a high level of care.
2: From a trauma perspective, uh, things really haven't changed too much for us. We're still seeing the same type of patients we saw before at about the same volume as before. So from a logistic operational standpoint, Uh, trauma hasn't changed drastically. Sometimes when we talk about crisis standards of care, we get in our mindset that we're making the door smaller. It's harder to get care. That's not what you're gonna see. We're making the room bigger.
1: Or in many cases, converting rooms. This is a former storage room that has been set up for transfusions at St. Alphonsus. The items that were stored here have been moved to a conference room across the hall. This is an operating theater that now has newly set up ICU beds. Now that non-emergency surgeries have been suspended, the space can be used to treat COVID and other patients.
2: You know, My mentor would always say uh, critical care is not just a physical location, it's a state of mind. So we can deliver that critical care in the emergency room. We can deliver that critical care in an operating room, in a recovery room. We don't have to be tied to any physical location.
1: That's good news for patients with emergencies and injuries. They'll get care. But the conversion of operating theaters and physical therapy rooms to COVID units comes at a cost to other patients who are waiting for surgeries to remove tumors or are in pain while their hip replacements are delayed indefinitely. Upstairs, the intensive care unit and cardiac intensive care unit are filled with COVID-positive patients. There were 26 COVID patients on Wednesday morning, but that's a number that fluctuates often as patients are admitted, discharged, or die. During our visit, nurses were preparing to end life-saving treatment for one patient after consulting with their family. Other healthcare workers had just finished shifting patients into prone positions. The ICU was silent, with most patients sedated and on ventilation. Earlier in the week, Dr. Jim Souza, Chief Physician Executive of St. Luke's Health System, said ICU patients at his facility have a higher mortality rate than previous COVID surges.
4: When compared with our winter surge, when our ICU mortality was around 28 percent, we're now seeing an ICU mortality rate of about 43 percent. For those who go to the ICU and survive, they will be terribly disabled for at least a short period of time. I'm talking months. Sometimes that will be permanent. You cannot spend four weeks on mechanical ventilation,
1: paralyzed and sedated, and then stand up and walk away. Not all Idaho hospitals have the ability to care for critically ill COVID patients. And increasingly, critical access facilities are relying on Life Flight to transfer those patients to regional hospitals. At the St. Alphonsus Boise campus, Lifelight operates a command center that coordinates patient transportation from the Washington and Oregon coasts to Montana, with 26 bases currently in operation. Often, that means getting patients from smaller critical access facilities, like those in Blackfoot or Salmon, to the nearest trauma center or regional care center, whether that's in Portland or Idaho Falls or Bozeman. Lately, those calls are more frequent, and some patients are traveling longer distances for beds, like from Coeur d'Alene to Twin Falls. Most of the time, transportation home is the patient's responsibility, and those bills can be thousands of dollars. I, I heard a very, you know, Sad story uh, recently about a
2: a, a critical access hospital really struggling to find a place to transfer uh, their patients, Uh, you know, a patient who was bleeding and needed a a higher level of care. and, And, you know, they mentioned that they called 30 or 40 different facilities and all of them said were full.
1: But Dr. Fillmore emphasized that those caregivers will keep calling until they find a bed.
2: I think that is a sign of a robust health system, right, that we can coordinate care no matter where you are, right, that we can use our resources to the maximum.
1: Even if those resources include bells in lieu of call buttons. Dr. Fillmore said that in addition to getting vaccinated, Idahoans can help ease the strain on the healthcare system by taking care of themselves and avoiding dangerous situations that might land them in the emergency room. Our thanks to St. Alphonsus and to Life Flight for giving us access. For some patients in emergency situations, their first encounter with the healthcare system is EMS after a 911 call. On Friday, I spoke to Travis Michael Bus, chief of the Lewiston Fire Department and president of the Idaho Fire Chiefs Association about how the increase in emergency calls related to COVID is affecting response times and patient transport services. How has the recent surge in COVID cases affected your ability to respond in a timely manner?
4: Well, you know the, the COVID calls have definitely had a significant uptick over the last few weeks, and then you add that to the already current call volume. Uh, it's been a busy summer a- alone, and then you add the COVID to it. Uh, it's it's been it's been really hard. We actually last month was the uh, largest number on record in our department's history for the number of EMS calls in in a in a month, and uh, as we're finishing out this month. Uh, WE ANTICIPATE WE WILL BREAK AN ALL-TIME DEPARTMENT RECORD FOR THE NUMBER OF EMS CALLS.
1: HOW DOES THAT AFFECT YOUR RESPONSE TIME?
4: Uh, YOU KNOW, it, IT 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 THROWS A CHALLENGE AND, and it, IT'S REQUIRING US TO LOOK AT PRIORITIZING. And, AND I SAY THAT IT HASN'T IMPACTED US AS MUCH AND, and THAT'S BECAUSE OF MY STAFF. Uh, I HAVE, uh, WE CALL THEM THE CRUISER, WHAT WE CALL TURN AND BURN. They go on a call, they get to the hospital, they drop the patient off. And then as soon as they can get the gurney made and get supplies, they're going to the next call, which then creates a big deficit on our report writing. And, um, but you know, we are having to prioritize whether we're sending an engine company to a, a call or a chief officer or a medic crew utilizing mutual aid, we go to all calls. And so if we're tied up on EMS and what we're seeing is we're seeing what we call call concurrency. When we get one call, we're seeing three or four calls in the next 10 minutes. And so we're calling an off-duty personnel and it is, its it becomes a very big challenge.
1: You're president of the Idaho Fire Chiefs Association. What are you hearing from other first responders around the state?
4: Uh, I just had a board meeting with all of our board of directors just before this interview. And the message is simple as uh, every department is seeing a significant amount of call volume, uh, which then is taxing their system and then more importantly, is it's taxing our employees. I mean, they, we've been dealing with COVID for 18 months. And now with this 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 last Delta variant surge, um, they're just worn down. And, and of course we've had coming off of a wildfire season of, of one we've never had before. And and it is truly, we're really worried about them being worn out. But that's the message across the state uh, is that our, our, we're just going on a lot of calls and everybody's having to prioritize their responses. And you know what we don't wanna do is, you know, have to delay responses, but because of priority dispatching, we may take uh, an alpha, a low acu- acuity call, and we may have to wait 10 minutes and um, before we can get someone heading that way.
1: You know, you've mentioned your employees a couple times and you mentioned that they, they turn and burn, they, they turn around and they go right to the next call. Uh, have they also had to deal with themselves being out and having to isolate or be in quarantine because of their own exposure?
4: you know here in Lewiston we've done well um with the you know we have standards of how we live in the fire stations and 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 what how we go on calls and and taking all the protective means we can um but yeah it has a has an impact and then the bigger impact is those that are off and quarantine, somebody we have to keep those staffing levels up and so uh, even this morning i had a meeting with one of my Battalion chiefs, we had to mandatorily uh, require an employee that's having to work um, 16 hours of overtime today um, because we are short-staffed and we have to keep the staffing. And uh, we've had record numbers of overtime this year um, due to wildfires and calls. And, and and so now they're they're they just finished a 24-hour shift. We're mandatorily making them work 16 hours. They're going to get an eight-hour break, and then they're going to come back tomorrow and finish another 24-hour shift. And and with the call volume, I mean, we usually average 20 to 23 calls a day. We were popping 46 to 50 calls a day right now with the same staffing level. And and that's that what we worry about of those people. And, and that's what I'm hearing across the board with a lot of uh, EMS agencies and, and fire departments in Idaho.
1: We know that a number of patients in rural Idaho have to be transported to larger hospitals from critical access hospitals. Uh, what's your role in that and what are you seeing?
4: So our role is we try to support our outlying rural access hospitals and, and um, bringing staff, but here recently we've, we've struggled because we use our off-duty uh, fire and EMS personnel to take those transports so we keep our our on duty crews for the 911 calls. And because of the workload and the call volume, if they get eight hours off, they're not answering their phone. They, they're they not coming in. And so that is having an impact to where we're having to say no more than we ever had before for these distance transports of bringing patients from the rural access hospitals in or bringing from our patients because our hospitals are getting full is maybe that rural app Access Hospital is the only hospital that has a bed that we can get a patient into. And, and so we are, we're, we're having to say no more than we ever have before. And, and I don't hold that against my, my personnel. It's they have to rest. I mean, we're all worn out. and That's just one of the impacts of, the, of what we're facing.
1: When a patient needs a bed and you aren't able to transport them, what happens to that patient?
4: You know, it, it's it's an interesting deal because that bed, if, if the medical facility, it's kind of like a lottery, we get the bed and if they can't get the patient transported or en route within a, a, a period of time, they may lose that bed completely, which then now that takes the medical facility having to go back through the process of calling and trying to find another place. And so that is one of the impacts that we are seeing. Uh, and then maybe that patient's stuck in the emergency room, which now, if we transport an emergency call in, uh, they, you know, they may have to wait in the waiting room for a few hours because, you know, our our, our emergency rooms that maybe have 20 beds, well, if they're holding patients um, because there's no place in their facility or another, maybe now we're down to a 12 per a 12 bed ER instead of 20, and that's an impact for motor vehicle accidents. We're seeing a lot of traumas right now in motorcycle, motor vehicle, and and illnesses that aren't COVID related. And so all this just kind of creates the the perfect storm to where we see these critical patients of, of are we gonna be able to get them the care they need and the timeframe they need?
1: How about patients who need to move to hospitals that are even further away? What's Life Flight's role in that?
4: Yeah, so usually if they're a farther distance, they're bringing in their fixed wing, pl- fixed wing planes and, and that creates another impact on us because we have to get the flight crew uh, to the hospital and then the patient, and the flight crew back to the airport. Those, those calls can take 45 minutes to an hour and that takes one of our primary 911 ambulances out of service. So we're working with our mutual aid partners to try to see, okay, who has an available resource? Can we get them there? And you know, under the crisis care standards, it allows us to, to send a single uh, provider on that vehicle because the lifelight crew is providing all the patient care, but we're getting creative. We're doing things in my 30 year career I've never seen before and uh, talk about, um, I, I always say I'm, I'm about thinking out of the box, but in, in the last 18 months, I've never thought more out of the box than we have just to make sure we're continuing to provide the services our communities deserve
1: what can people do right now to ease the strain on resources that first responders are experiencing
4: wear your seatbelt. wear your helmet wear a life jacket i mean we're still in over the weather this weekend's going to be warm people are going to be in the water we see drownings the fishing season is doing those preventative measures we can do for the for the emergencies that are going to continue to happen whether we're in a, a pandemic or not and then realizing you know if you need an emergency if you ha- are, are truly have an emergency please call us the other is don't put off your health care that's one of the things we're seeing is people are sicker because they've been putting off just going to the doctor and and yes we're in a pandemic but that has a big impact that then trickles down and now we're putting a bigger load on our 911 services and and we're delaying responses and so if we can prevent that i think that's the most important thing we can do here is is just be proactive, uh, and follow those preventative measures that we've been talking about.
1: All right. Lewiston Fire Department Chief Travis Michael Bust, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank
4: you for having me on.
1: You can watch my full interview with Chief Michael Bust online. Visit youtube.com slash Idaho reports. Idaho's hospitals aren't the only ones affected by the state's recent surge. On Friday, producer Ruth Brown spoke to Sam McComas, associate director of patient care services and chief nurse executive at mann Staff VA Medical Center in Spokane, about how the influx of COVID patients has affected care for veterans at his facility.
0: Sam McComas, I appreciate you being here with me today. Can you walk me through a little bit of uh, how has the latest coronavirus surge in Idaho impacted uh, the VA in Spokane?
3: Yeah, there's been a lot, of course, our facility is only about 20 to 30 minutes from the state line and just a little further to Cooney Medical Center, which is just across the border in Coeur Idaho. And that covers our catchment area or our catchment area is included in that. And we have been in close collaboration with Kootenai Medical Center specifically about what we can do to help them assist care for patients, both veteran and non-veteran patients alike. And that is included. We have been able to admit patients from Cooney Medical Center and transfer them to our facility. And some of those are veteran patients and some of those are non-veteran patients. However, when we come from the VA, we call it our fourth mission or our humanitarian mission. We see need in the community and we wanna do what we can to help out. And any patient that we can admit to our hospital here in Spokane opens up a bed for Cootie Medical Center to have more capacity to care for a patient in their facility. So we feel like it's a community effort and we're happy to be part of that effort.
0: Uh, The pandemic has put an unusual strain on all healthcare facilities. How unprecedented is it for a VA medical, excuse me, a VA medical center to accept civilian patients?
3: Yeah, this is a unique circumstance. Uh, This is something we did um, during the COVID pandemic when it sort of during the first peak and it's something we're doing now. I know that other VA medical centers are in collaboration with their community partners, um, but it is sort of the first time during this COVID pandemic. It's the first time that we've actually done it. We've talked about it. We've made communication and we've made partnerships with our community partners and the hospital community partners but this is the first time we've done it and we feel like it's a great honor, it's a great opportunity. You know, some of the data, if I can just take a second to share, you know, up until this point, uh, during the last couple of weeks, about three weeks or so, we have admitted a total of eight patients from Kootenai Medical Center. Two of those were non-VA patients uh, and six of those were veteran patients. One of the daughters of one of those humanitarian patients that we admitted, her mother was admitted here, And we cared for her here for a few weeks. Um, Upon triage and evaluation in the emergency room, her mother was preliminarily told, we may not be able to admit you, even though you may or may not meet criteria for admission just because we're so tight. Um, And then we were able, in collaboration with our partners at Kootenai, to offer that patient admission here. And the daughter reports how thankful she was that we were able to offer admission to that patient here and she was very complimentary to the care we were able to provide here. Um, she is also a healthcare professional, the daughter is, and we were able to uh, get some information from her specifically about the top level care that her mother was able to receive here. And we feel like that's one example of the great work we can do as community partners together with our partners in Idaho.
0: Your medical center is about uh, 30 miles away from Kootenai Health, but I wanted to run by you. Has the VA been accepting any uh, Washington COVID patients or is it mostly Idaho COVID patients that you see?
3: Yeah, of course it's a combination. Um, Specifically, we are, of course, we have an urgent care center here. We have all of our regular admissions that we see here. Uh, We have just, we have seen an overall increase in demand from both Washington, Idaho, Montana, all of these areas. There is an increase in demand Um, One of the other partners that we've partnered up with here in Washington is our state veteran home. So this is not a VA entity. It's the Washington State Department of Veteran Affairs. They have a long-term care facility here in our community, and we've built a great relationship with them. And um, we have also admitted some of their patients here so they can receive a higher level of care, all of this related to COVID and COVID-like illnesses.
0: Outside of the pandemic, the VA, of course, offers a variety of services to veterans. Have you had to reduce any services that uh, perhaps would normally be uh, provided to veterans in Washington?
3: Yeah, great question. So this is a balance that we, this is a fine line that we walk every day. Uh, Of course, uh, it comes down to doing what we can to offer the the most care we can to as many patients as we possibly can. Some of those outpatient non-emergent services have been impacted. We have had to divert resources, mostly staff members, to help care for our more acutely ill patients. That means that sometimes that ambulatory outpatient, uh, every year sort of annual checkup type appointments, some of those have had to be delayed or rescheduled. Of course, we're doing everything we can to convert those to virtual appointments whenever possible. Um, WE DO WHAT WE CAN AS A SORT OF A MAKEUP. WE'VE OFFERED A LOT OF OVERTIME AND EXTRA HOURS TO OUR STAFF MEMBERS TO BE ABLE TO DO THAT WORK. BUT STILL, YES, THERE ARE IMPACTS TO SOME OF THOSE OUTPATIENT SERVICES.
0: HAS THAT RESULTED IN ANY ADVERSE OUTCOMES FOR PATIENTS WHO PERHAPS WOULD HAVE GOTTEN THAT CARE HAD IT NOT BEEN A PANDEMIC?
3: YEAH, THAT'S A GREAT QUESTION. THAT'S SOMETHING WE WRESTLE WITH ALL THE TIME IS, WELL, WHAT IF, what if THAT PATIENT WHO'S WAITING um, has something bad happened to them. So that's why we have done, I'm especially proud of our home telehealth team. This is a team of nurses who contact patients by phone. And we've been especially vigilant with those patients who have tested positive for COVID, but were not admitted. Maybe they were not ill enough, they didn't meet criteria for admission, um, but we still know that they tested positive for COVID. We have a team of nurses who are reaching out to those patients on a regular basis to see how they're doing. Are your symptoms getting worse? Are you able to get things done that you need to done? Do you have the support you need at home? And that's one of the measures um, that we are doing to, because of that very concern, we're doing what we can to reach out to those patients in a proactive way, most of it virtually, just to connect with them to see how things are going.
0: Earlier, we talked about equipment. Uh, It's my understanding the VA has shared some equipment with uh, other hospitals. Can you walk me through uh, how those resources have been divided? Yeah,
3: thanks for the question. So we uh, early during the first COVID surge, uh, we identified the opportunity where maybe it would be wise for us, for our facility, and also as a community partner, to increase some of our equipment, such as things like ventilators um, and the in the equipment that's associated with ventilators. And so one of the things that we've been able to do during this most recent COVID surge is we have lent four ventilators to our friends at Kootenay Medical Center and also for additional ventilators to a partner North Idaho Advanced Care Hospital in the Pulse Falls area where we're able to lend that equipment to them. And from our perspective, they can use it on whatever kind of patient they need to. And it's a great opportunity for us to, versus that patient simply, or that ventilator sitting here in storage or sitting here getting maintenance, we, we can send that ventilator out. And that's another patient who gets to be on a ventilator. It kills us to know We have colleagues and counterparts who may be in that crisis standard of care where they have to decide here, and as an example, there are two patients who need a ventilator, but I only have one ventilator. We heard that and said, hold on, we can help. So that's one of the ways we're trying to reach out.
0: Sam McComas, I really appreciate your time today uh, and I hope you're doing well.
3: Absolutely, my pleasure, thank you.
1: For our full interviews, go to the Idaho Reports YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Reports, And while you're there, hit subscribe. The regular season of Idaho Reports starts October 29th. In the meantime, you can find our reporting on the Idaho Reports blog, the Idaho Reports YouTube channel, and the Idaho Reports weekly podcast. You can also get a roundup of all of our reporting with our weekly newsletter delivered to your inbox each Friday. You'll find the links to all of those at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much for watching. Please stay safe.